0: Hello and welcome to the INS Infusion Room. Today I have in the studio with me Dr. Nancy Moreau, Dr. Peter Carr, and Dennis Ernst. Now these three esteemed professionals are leading the discussion in INS's next virtual program on June 29th and 30th. That program is right around the corner, Um, Nancy's waving, (laughs) (laughs) you're throwing up the flag there. This virtual program focuses on promoting vessel health and preservation through vein visualization. Welcome, Nancy, Peter, and Dennis. And although the three of you are really quite familiar to our listening audience, I do want to ask each of you to share a little bit about yourselves, your background, and your work. So, Nancy, let's start with you.
1: Uh, Hello, everyone. I've been a nurse for more than 35 years and specialized in vascular access early on. pediatric and neonatal patients. Got very involved with home infusion and with education and kind of caught the bug and passion of PIC lines early on in the late 80s. Um, Since then, I started my own company, PIC Excellence, with a focus on education and being a resource so that people could find out information on vascular access and really just have some support. And, uh, Since then, I've become more involved in research, had the pleasure of of being with Dr. Carr and many others and getting my PhD, and uh, just really enjoy the specialization in vascular access and um, working with patients as well as um, answering questions with research and providing education.
0: Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for being here today. Dennis, let's have you tell us about yourself and your work.
2: Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, Dennis Ernst here. I am the director of the Center for Phlebotomy Education. Uh, I provide the laboratory perspective to this to this dialogue here. So um, uh, I am a professionally trained medical technologist and also a certified phlebotomist. After about 20 years of kicking around various hospitals and laboratories uh, around Michigan, Kentucky, and Indiana, I decided I needed to uh, branch out and focus mainly on education, specifically in blood sample collection. And so uh, my wife, also a registered nurse, uh, we founded the Center for Phlebotomy Education to help all professions who are drawing blood samples, whether it's by venipuncture or from existing lines, to do so with precision and perfection, and not um, influencing the uh, test result in the process. So that's what we've been working on the last twenty years, uh, reaching out to all kinds of folks via live conferences, webinars, uh, books, videos, online content, and. Finally, a wonderful podca- podcast here with the uh, Infusion Nurses Society. So my life is now full <laughs> and complete.
0: <laughs> Thank you for being here, Dennis. Uh, Peter, let's go to you next.
3: Thanks, John, and hello to all the INS listeners. Uh, my name is Pete Carr. I'm a senior lecturer at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Uh, it's on the west coast of Ireland near uh, the Wild mm-hmm. Atlantic Way. Um, I'm a registered nurse and have been for over 20 years. And um, in that time, I worked in an intravenous team, uh, placing peripheral intravenous catheters. And uh, that inspired my attendance at the first Rokova where I met Nancy Moreau and started, I think, a dialogue. <laughs> and, so for, and, and so many others. And so many others. And there's a good story about that, but <laughs> for another day, Um, perhaps. And I've realized that there's a a really strong community in vascular access and infusion therapy, uh, a very uh, sharing and collaborative one. And uh, since that time, I worked with um, some leading experts in the UK, Sheila Inwood, and then journeyed to New Zealand and Australia, um, where I completed a PhD um, in the same university uh, as Nancy at Griffith University with the uh, world famous Alliance for Vascular Access Teaching and Research Group, or commonly referred to as the Avatar Group. Um, And I had to return to Ireland in uh, late 2018. And I'm fortunate enough to be in a university that um, is at the, I suppose, the coalface of medical tech and device innovation. And I'm hoping to link that infrastructure with some um, opportunities for clinical research and uh, hopefully in time we'll be uh, able to join another INS podcast and submit some um, articles to uh, to the INS journal. And uh,
0: Absolutely.
3: Really appreciate uh, the invite as well, Dawn. And Send great-
0: them our way. We will love those manuscripts.
3: Yep.
0: Um, and stay tuned, listeners, for Peter's second part of his story.
2: <laughs> later it's, it's,
3: it's, there could be a cost in that one john <laughs> <laughs> for you or for me oh no for me for me
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we we would have to be sitting down and have a cold one you know and really let the story yeah. come out fully
0: oh okay so for <laughs> another time for sure yeah. so right back to our agenda <laughs> Nancy, I'm going to start our conversation with you. I'm going to ask you to give us some of the history around vessel use and think maybe about our thoughts that we had in the past regarding this subject, and then tell us where we are now in this area of practice.
1: Well, I definitely believe that the concept of vessel health and preservation has um, developed over time based on patient need. Having been involved with infusion therapy, in the 70s and 80s, and now, you know, into the the new century, I definitely can see changes that have occurred. The concept of Vessel Health and Preservation came out of a work product and um, a a company-sponsored initiative by Teleflex Arrow, along with Nancy Trick and others. And has formulated over time into a model and a book which Dr. Carr and others have contributed to that is completely open access. And so a lot of information there, but as far as you know, vessel development and um, the process of selection over time, we're doing more and more as far as being reliant on intravenous access for therapies Every uh, decade, we see an increase. And as patients um, have more and more treatments, their veins are depleted and we have more and more challenges. We've seen improvements in products. We've seen improvements in the type of sterilization and uh, treatment delivery systems. But what we've seen the most of and what we're going to be talking about in this session is the advent of visualization technologies. And, and I can say for myself as an early pediatric nurse and graduate nurse so many years ago, I dreamed of being able to have x-ray vision inside Mm -hmm. patient's arms so I could know where those veins were. And now we have it. So Mm -hmm. Uh, it it does allow us to make better choices and potentially to reuse vessels over and over rather than depleting them everywhere.
0: Okay. So, Peter, regarding vessel health and preservation, goals for practice and nursing education, how, how does this play in?
3: I think the most important element for me of vessel health and preservation, or the book, as I kind of call it, And I was fortunate enough to be one of the many uh, co-authors on that, and edited by by Nancy. Is that we have now a a guide, a a guide that has a structure in place from decision making, from insertion techniques, from post-insertion care, that you can use as a template in creating curriculum. And I think that's really important to have, and. I can tell you that I've used it this year. For, so the universities, the schools of nursing and midwifery in Ireland, for the for the first time now, are bringing in a curriculum in peripheral intravenous cannulation and venipuncture. So it's important, from a biased point of view, from the nursing profession, that we get this right, because traditionally the main profession that insert peripheral intravenous catheters or other vascular access devices is the medical community or no medical colleagues. Yet the majority of care and maintenance is performed by the nursing staff and midwifery staff. There are some specialities of nurses and some unique professional entities such as midwives who will be able to perform the, the peripheral intravenous catheter insertions and that's the observations of reality, as well as performing venipuncture and sending off blood sample requests. But if we just focus on those two tasks and leave it at that, then as Nancy said, we ignore all the other devices that are there. And you think about it, if we have in our undergrad just some information for peripheral intravenous catheter insertion, then you have to arrive with the question, Who is providing the education for all the other vascular access devices in our curriculum? Who is providing the education on the various nuances around blood sampling, blood analyses, and and so on? And how that relates to um, a patient experience. Why should we perform a venipuncture with a steel needle stab versus um, a blood draw from a central venous catheter? And so on. And all these uh, questions are very pertinent to the philosophical theoretical framework that is vessel health and preservation. It's very simple. You want to preserve the veins. You don't want to damage them. And having a book, as I said, like VHP, it gives you that starting point that these are the elements that need to be shared in this commonly performed uh, element of clinical care. And it's, it's so broad. It's, it is almost a microsystem of healthcare. Like right now in Ireland, apart from the pandemic, our, our health service is dealing with a hacking. So there is no computers or informatics in our health service at the moment. And in many ways, you can draw parallels with taking out computers, diagnostic imaging, laboratory results. So a simple blood test now takes a pro- approximately about six to eight hours to get a result. Mm. Like that's incredible. So if you if you look at that kind of disruption in your healthcare because mm-hmm. of that, think about if you took out vascular access infusion therapy out of the system, and how healthcare would fall down and collapse. But what we have to realize is that the current educational research, the current clinical research. Certainly, the current clinical research identifies less than ideal outcomes, and we have to improve that. So we've got an element of care that's ongoing in our healthcare, but yet it's not really good. There are a couple of ways of fixing it, and education is certainly one of them.
0: I wish I had some music playing in the background that was building to a crescendo (laughs) (laughs) with the symbol at the end of all of that. That was... So we
1: well. can cheer, yeah. <laughs> I've,
3: I've got two suggestions. We can do that. Was that that Hitchcock one where the lady's oh, yeah. in the shower with the, with the knife, <laughs> or, or we can have uh, that brilliant one from Jaws? 90 19, was that 78? <laughs> oh, that'd be good. Yeah, the Jaws
0: one is piercing, yeah. of course. See,
3: we're gonna well, need a bigger cannula. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. Well, speaking Dennis. of yeah, speaking of yes, jaws,
2: I, I, speaking of jaws, I can I can hear that audio that music playing in every laboratory that's taking six to eight hours to get their results out. That is, I, I can cannot imagine the chaos and the stress that mm. uh, is going on in a laboratory where they have to resort back to paper results. Uh, mm. You know, six to eight hours. That's just.
0: And think of what's going on at bedside. Oh,
3: no Everything is just
0: hanging there.
3: That is is just in the context of this hacking uh, event, which is horrible. But in Uh, one way, though, these events create an opportunity for conversations. And this comes back to Vessel Health and Preservation. Does the patient genuinely need this laboratory test? Do they need to have a needle inserted into their median cubital vein or what will that diagnostic value offer us in our decision-making? So while it's horrible, and I imagine it's horrible for the staff, the nurses and the medical professions in that space, I think they will reap the rewards in some ways about decision-making in in their clinical practice and, and rounding, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And and it's all about test utilization, which we here in the U.S., we've we've, for the longest time been understanding that we overutilize the laboratory in order to many tests. So in a situation like yours where hackers are closing things down really makes test utilization of primary importance, only it's not accidental. It's you have to purposefully now utilize those tests wisely and efficiently.
3: Yeah, there, there was a, there was an excellent when I when I was in Australia there was an excellent um, initiative really taking shape which was called Choosing Wisely, and what, what we all want from our from our interventions from our nursing care interventions from our medical care and what patients want is value for healthcare and not be wasted and uh, yeah I, I think phlebotomy blood sampling is really key in that. Because that starts the diagnostic kind of cascade or algorithm or, or process or journey. So I think that's uh, that's one thing certainly to think of in this is while you are maintaining vessel health and preservation and saving people's blood, if you like, um, you're also saving uh, a cost to the healthcare um, provider and, and service provider as well.
2: Right, exactly. And when patients want value in their healthcare... Uh, I can segue right into the vein location devices because they don't want to get stuck twice. They don't want to have an IV inserted more than once. They don't want to have a vener puncture more than once. So when we utilize the kind of vein location technologies that uh, we'll be talking about in June, patients are going to have a better experience, have more positive experiences, uh, fewer venipunctures. punctures, uh, you know, they're painful. And uh, studies show that uh, 20% of the population is predisposed to needle phobia. So we certainly don't want to give them a triggering event that throws them into full-blown needle phobia because we're not using the technology and leveraging it properly to minimize the pain of a puncture and the number of punctures. So we'll be talking a about ultrasound of course as a, a tool to be used to help locate veins so we'll be talking about uh, tissue illuminating devices or trans mm-hmm. illuminators and that's probably the biggest class of devices they they flood the tissue with light they you, you place them on the skin and, and there's various designs and and uh Orientations, but you you put it on the skin and it fills the tissue with light, and the veins are dark and the tissue is bright, so you can see where the structures are that you might not be able to palpate, or uh, and it provides you with a guide uh, as to where you can palpate and find a vein rather than than guessing. And uh, the third classification we'll be discussing, of course, is the infrared technologies, which are relatively new on the market, although. We're talking about maybe 10 years or so, but uh, several of those types in that class are, are available, and they are probably the, the jazziest devices. They don't require tissue contact with the patient. They're, they take a reading on the, the patient's um, structures beneath the skin using infrared technology, uh, and they will project on top of the skin a map of, of where the veins lie beneath. So, again, it helps you to find a vein, uh, where to palpate for a vein uh, in a very non-invasive way. And they really are beneficial for patients who want that one-stick experience, and who doesn't? Nobody should like needle sticks. Nobody should
1: like needle sticks. That's right. I don't know about 20% of the population uh, being (laughs) needle-phobic. Heck, we should all be (laughs) needle-phobic.
2: We should. We should. I don't mind and,
1: being on this side of the needle.
2: <laughs> exactly, and you know, I, I feel I feel worse for the nurses who are inserting IVs than I do for the phlebotomists who are inserting smaller needles for venipunctures because you're using a much larger device and it's much more painful because of it. But there's no way around. There's no way getting around that, um, and so that's what makes technology even more important to, to leverage when you're using devices that are that are much more difficult to get into the center of the vein and stay there. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know, I think the other point, too, is that visualization technologies help you to, you know, resolve a problem. You know, just like um, Pete was talking about with the hack and not having the computers, what happens when we lose vascular access? You know, when the device fails for whatever reason, becomes occluded you know with blood reflux or you know various sorts of things well now we can use vein visualization technology to more quickly re-access and to to gain that method of delivering the therapy without a whole lot of delay you know dawn you were talking about you know what has changed and and things that are going forward i think that like pete was saying providing the education and getting more trained and specialized people that can use things like visualization technology, but even some of the infrared and and other types of visualization helps even the bedside nurse to be able to get that catheter back in the vein effectively. Now, I will say research has shown us that those that have better education and the specialized training are faster, better, it costs less overall um, to be able to start the devices and put them in. But it's nice to have tools, especially when the specialists aren't available. Mm -hmm, Absolutely.
0: Dennis, where are we on that spectrum of utilizing vein visualization technology for phlebotomy?
2: Well, I think it's pretty underutilized really because I, I see Uh, very few facilities, really exploiting them to their fullest for the benefit of the patient. And I think they have the greatest utility in training sessions, whether it's uh, uh, before employment or during employment uh, when we're onboarding new phlebotomists, as well as those who are trying to uh, hone their skills over the first few years in the profession. That's where these could be most beneficial to the laboratory the phlebotomist and to the patient Mm -hmm. uh so they're they're really underutilized i think it's a technology that should be um uh, in place more uh they're they're relatively affordable when you consider the cost to the patient and to the system for recollecting draws because uh or recollecting patients because the Mm -hmm. sample was hemolyzed because the needle wasn't properly placed or any of the other number of reasons samples get rejected. Mm -hmm. But if we utilize technology a little better, I think we'd have happier patients, more successful venipunctures, fewer venipunctures, or or rather fewer repeat venipunctures, and we'd have higher patient satisfaction scores and even better samples. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and there's also... There's also a trend in healthcare right now for one-stick hospitalization.
1: Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. How many years have we been saying
2: this? <laughs> I, I know, I know. Where and, should that start? Hmm. Yeah. So I, we, I, that's all. That's that's all good stuff. Well, Absolutely. isn't
1: that what we would all want? If we have to be hospitalized for whatever reason, wouldn't we like someone? To think ahead and go, hmm, what would be the best device to insert that will last them their whole length of therapy? Oh, and let's put it in right. Let's put it in a way that uh, it sits in the vein correctly. It's long enough. uh, It'll allow the infusion of the medications. Gee, intentional device selection. What a novel concept.
2: What a concept, yeah. And increase the dwell time of, of IVs. It's, it's all good for the it patient. It can be
1: done. It, it can sure can.
2: Be done. It sure can. It reduces costs, increases patient experiences, better quality samples, all of that. But uh, yeah. it's coming. It's coming.
0: So this is a nice time to flip back over to Pete. And let's have you talk about first attempt success. Tell us what it means. What are the goals behind that? Uh,
3: I, th- I think I think that definition is is probably evolving now into into what uh, preceded the question, which is about the right device inserted successfully on one occasion until therapy is no longer needed at that particular diagnostic period, and it's an honourable attempt at preserving people's veins. I would suggest that it's it's a triad of factors. I would suggest that there is a pre-insertion decision-making element to it, that when you go needle to skin, you have realized that this is the best, most appropriate device. So, So you, you hear the term catheter appropriateness. It's the mm-hmm. most appropriate device at this particular time and then you build on your assessment. So if, if it's catheter X, I now need to maximize the insertion success. So will a traditional attempt work, or will, as Dennis alluded to, the various technologies that are out there to identify a vessel, will one of these adjuncts be needed? Uh, and there are a certain amount of variables that, are, that influence that insertion success. And I think just to be simple for our listeners is that it's a triad. It's There are patient factors. There are key patient variables that will influence this, the first-time insertion success. And, you know, that really will boil down to a visible or palpable vessel. Equally, there are clinician factors. How likely is that clinician, how confident Uh, And what is the likelihood of a a first-time insertion success? What's their experience? What's their training? What's Mm -hmm. their expertise? They all influence the insertion success. And then technology. And technology, of course, if you can't see or feel a vein, you're going to get technology to help you in that process. And those three together, I think, generally combine to, I guess, influence the insertion success key things that underpin that are you know educational curriculum the hospital philosophy whether it's the hospital Mm -hmm. philosophy around we're going to charge you we're going to sue you and so on and so forth if adverse events occur but your hospital has to really understand what the problem is and you know from living and working in four different countries we tend to be fascinated about Augmenting our practice around a national standard that is only influenced by infection—that is the mm. only problem that can happen with Ooh. a device. And if you do that, then you 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 have got your blinkers on and you've got tunnel vision. So for me, that that's really important about focusing back onto first-time insertion success. So first-time insertion success and having a catheter in until it's no longer needed if that's the mantra then we start to get funders excited then we start mm-hmm. to get um, you know key champions and advocate groups excited then we then the organizations, such as INS, the AVAS, the wakovas they start feeding into the intensive care networks, the microbiology conferences, you know, and so on. And then they start to realize, well, yeah, actually the infection happens really after loads of these catheters, but we didn't really think of that. We're thinking like of all the mechanistic things at play and all the bacterias that are at play and all the antibiotics that we're going to have to bombard them with like those people with the greatest respect, they don't read Vessel Health and Preservation. They, a lot of them don't come to INS. They don't come to Ava. Uh, they wouldn't, they, you know, I, I think the, the best one that I got a kick out of is when Ava did their br- really brilliant um, t- uh, Twitter kind of blast on Andy Murray's forearm catheter. And like, if you ever get a chance to look at that thread, that's just, for any kind of uh, social media researcher out there, that's a hoot. Um, and one guy tweeted. He said, "Oh my God, there's there's actually a conference for vascular access devices. Who knew?" Um, <laughs> and then he said, "And this I really love this bit. Like you know, he goes, I can't wait to join the NG society. You know, so that's that's what they think. They think there's a you know they, they 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 equate nasogastric tubes with vascular access devices. It's like, and I keep oh, saying, for, you know." <laughs> Or wound care. Exactly. Like this is the Dr. Pepper analogy. Uh, You know, Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that can happen? And (laughs) until we start refocusing and recalibrating um, vascular access outcomes with insertion success outcomes, then we'll get a real conversation going. Because I can tell you, and in our little bubble, I, I tend to have um, great fun with people because people have been very generous to me in my evolution as an interested clinician and practitioner and researcher in, in vascular access, right? But when you come back to the brilliant Emerald Isle, nobody wants to know. They don't want to know about this. Um, I, I, I like. I cannot get clinically involved and ensconced in my local hospital to place vascular access devices. Like that is the reality of it. Mm-hmm. So like when, you, when you're on the periphery and you're the all singing and dancing, I'll present this Cochrane review, here's some avatar research, here's the best things that we need to do, here are the latest guidelines coming in from INS, let's build this into our curriculum. Translating that into clinical practice is a huge challenge. And that links us mm-hmm. into implementation mm-hmm. science. And, you know, you, you, you kind of have to step back and think like, is this really important, Pete? Do you really want to push the boundaries of this? So probably your research labels you, maybe. And I think this is important because it, it's important for your listeners to understand that there is a, a challenge with implementation science and implementing your research. So I was fortunate enough to do a Cochrane review on our vascular access teams for insertion success and prevention of failure. Mm -hmm. And right now, our government is, as I said, bringing in a curriculum into nursing education so that nurses can be, and this is a terrible term, transfer of tasks. So nurses assume the transfer of a task, so they perform intravenous cannula pivc insertion venipuncture and so on so if you've got someone knocking on the door that says hey I, i'd like to work in the hospital and they go no 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 don't attack guy in that's the guy that wants teams if we get teams in the mm. hospital then we'll have no need to roll out this curriculum and this is what's been said to me so so this is do you see where we're bartering with kind of um, uh, ideologies and and thinking and you just step back and you go what about the poor devil in the bed? What about the poor patient? (laughs) Like, what's happened to him?
0: There's a real controversy out there because there's concern that the bedside nurses are now going to lose all of this skill.
3: Yeah, They never had had it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, exactly.
0: That's why yeah. we have teams. And I, I yeah. have to just—I know this is way on the periphery of your discussion here, but I think it fits. The idea that we we want to escalate very quickly to the use of that team, and I'm really glad we're moving into a world now where we don't have to attempt multiple times, have so many failures before we can go to that team, and just to take it back to the rusty, crusty bedside, I mean, this is a goofy story, but it tells it tells what happens to a patient. Um, a, a vascular access team member came into a patient's room, and there were a few pieces of gauze taped over a couple spots where the attempt had been made, or two attempts. And So in conversation with the patient, the vascular access nurse said, so you've had a couple tries, let me take off those the tape, and there was no puncture underneath. What What? the bedside nurse did was just (laughs) tape gauze on the patient in two different spots.
1: I've tried, I've looked.
0: I've tried, and now we've activated the team. And the patient said, Uh, no, no, It, it didn't happen. So what's wrong with that scenario? <laughs> so, 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 so and the, what's right scared. with that scenario?
3: So, 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 so that jumps into the MacGyver, the MacGyver type <laughs> workaround for me, and that's clever. And uh there's uh, Daphne Broadhurst, yes. Nancy. I've pronounced yeah. her name correctly. You did Re- yes. really, really great Canadian woman. Yeah, she's terrific. Um, and I had a. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind me revealing this. This is a good story, Daphne. Don't worry if you're listening. Um, So so at at Wakova, there was this talk about difficult intravenous access. And I said, like, how have we arrived that we've just labeled people as difficult? Why haven't we got a label like incompetent practitioner, (laughs) incompetent (laughs) clinician? Why why don't we use that? Never be a
1: sticker. Yeah. That's that's
3: really good. And then get rid of labeling patients like difficult. Now, she, she came up to me and she said, but Pete, in fairness, um, if we don't have a diva, if we don't have a difficult intravenous access case or a label, they're not going to come to us and we want them coming to us first. So there's a rich insight they there. They a reason. In, in, yeah, they do, they do. So that that's probably... The nourish of of of, uh, of someone uh, putting gauze gauze. I, under. I wish
0: there was a different acronym because yeah. diva has a connotation that, that it's about something else, but it, it means the you know there's a it challenge there. there on and they, though.
2: yeah,
0: it, it does, can't it does.
2: Really well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we well we 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 have the same kind of finger pointing in the laboratory sector because when phlebotomists miss a vein because it rolls or collapses, they blame the patient. Well, I, I missed because you have rolling veins. Your vein collapsed. Not, I was incapable of anchoring the vein properly. Not, yeah. well, I didn't I insert the needle. Did. That's right. It was your fault. It's your veins. I am completely competent and you're not.
0: <laughs> but here's what we know. If that vein was fully tethered down on its own, it wouldn't be suitable for access anyway. <laughs>
2: exactly. The exactly. roll. That's yeah. what means do. It all yeah.
1: comes back to education. You know, yeah. I, I really think we should say, even the stuff that you were talking about, Pete, those folks don't want the articles and the research. They want the summary. Give them the key points. You know, one, two, three, here it goes. But we know from the research that every time education is given, outcomes improve.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I think at the at the fulcrum or the core of that education is a decision making curriculum, at which you know vessel health is lovely. You know, there's Michigan appropriateness guidelines. It's lovely. You know, there 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 are various decision making uh, guidelines out there that are useful, but wouldn't it be so much better to have that up front and center and saying. Right. Now you can go and do your intravenous access or your simulation to get really perfect on this, to master it and head off. But if you arrive without understanding all the various devices that are on the market that could influence a better patient outcome, then we're probably doing ourselves a disservice, I I think.
1: And it's not a skill we're born with.
3: Yeah, we're, we're not. I mean, there's. Uh, well, I was. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think you? It, I think it's a wrong assumption that if you're a nurse, you have this yeah. innate skill. Yeah. It, yeah. It's very wrong. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, that 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 drives me kind of crazy as well, to a certain extent. Like if you go around hospitals internationally, they go, "Oh, we've got this guy; he's the wizard." And every, every one of these people will be the like the expert, like like they're the actual actual cannula hack that's going around. We have <laughs> this one person, like, and then you see what they do, and they like, yeah, Annie. Look, we we we've performed so many of these; we could put it in any particular vessel because we know the procedural steps to it. But why would you want to do that? Why would you want to put a a 24-gauge PIVC in the digital vessel of someone's finger on a Friday evening and thinking that that's going to sustain a chemotherapeutic agent? Like what sort of hack, what's the utility of that hack? And That's Mm -hmm. a true story. Um, yeah, so, so, I've seen so, it
1: done. Well, and, and, in, and, in pediatric patients, they put it everywhere.
3: Yeah, so so you know, it, you you kind of get you kind of get puzzled by that one, and then you, you then you kind of you just have to step back in and you go, gee, like this is a big shift. This is a big culture change. We're going to have a huge momentum movement." Like you you saw in our in our science, what clinical indication uh, cannula removal did for the discussion boards mm-hmm. between infectious disease um, professionals and so on Mm
2: -hmm. and those
3: for and against and i think the science will evolve around that as well and um whether we'll get more more studies replicating that finding um but i think it's fair to say that clinical indication is here to stay that'll be enhanced by um by better decision making tools but um it's to be continued it's to be continued i think share the info Spread the word.
0: We have had just a wonderful discussion here. We're about 42 minutes in. Uh, I'm going to go around the room and take closing thoughts. Dennis, you want to go first?
2: Yeah, you know, from a laboratorian's perspective, I am thrilled to be involved in this discussion because uh, historically labs and nursing departments haven't been great. Communicators. So, I'm a big advocate of tearing down the walls that are impeding conversations like this between laboratory departments and nursing departments. And this is a great place to start. And I think we'll expand this in multiple ways uh, at the event in June when we all get back together. But I think vein location technologies uh, are highly underutilized. And maybe we can just heighten awareness on their value while we're back together next time. And I think we'll find that in many facilities, we're gonna find that uh, it brings low hanging fruit. It allows us to access veins the first time where otherwise it, it would not. And yeah, I understand that the best vein locating device is at the tip of your finger, but not everybody, well, actually nobody enters the profession with that device calibrating. It takes months, if not years, to get that finger calibrated, to be able to palpate and know where the veins are. That's where this technology comes in, mm-hmm. to provide us that bridge so patients don't suffer repeated attempts to access veins for IVs or for, for lab work.
1: Bravo. Nancy, you're next then. Hey, honestly, I think it's about supporting each other, providing education, You know, nurses helping nurses. We really do have to help younger nurses become more confident, help them to have the knowledge and the tools that they need to be able to function and give them permission not to perform insertions if that's just not their thing. Bingo. Um, You know people who rise to the top, you know people who embrace it, want to learn more, want to get better at it. And we also know the reverse, people who really don't want to, don't feel comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. and patients shouldn't be subjected to that. They sh- The nurses should not be required to do that. And so I just think it comes back to mentoring, to education, to supervision, and to helping those who do have the talent, who want to gain the skills to become more confident.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Great point. I-,
1: I guess I also should mention, I just realized that the Vessel Health and Preservation book is also free on Kindle. Who knew? I mean, wow. So it makes it easy to access. Well, guess what I'm going to do? It's free.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's one for everyone in the audience. Uh,
0: (laughs) At the end of this program. Yeah. 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 Peter, how are you going to wrap up?
3: Well, I was just thinking, um, what's that really nice lady that's left her show in America? Um, She's got a big daytime show. Oprah? no. Kind of like Oprah, like she's got a chat show. Um,
0: oh, is it Ellen?
3: Yeah, Ellen, did you, you could take over to yes. Murdon.
0: <laughs> oh, you know, oh, sure. You know for
3: what? in the audience.
0: <laughs> I could have the dancing part down pat. I could yeah. do the dance.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, the, so this, funny.
1: Is,
3: this has been, yeah, this has been great fun. But it's also been, um, it's been insightful learning from me. So I, I would burn Nancy's ear every so often we meet up at, Conferences or when we graduate with PhDs and all the on the all the rest of it. But from the perspective of phlebotomy, I'm just I got excited when Dennis was on our our first uh, conversation preparing for the schedule in the end of June. So I'm looking forward to building that uh, friendship and professional collaboration. I think that's the re- as I said at the start. You know, I I, I met a kind of community of like minded people, and it just blew my mind. And it's got bigger and bigger and um, I know we, men- we mentioned someone earlier, Nancy, who you met, and I remember that person emailed me, and I emailed them back straight away. And they said I couldn't believe this person emailed me, and it's because I was influenced by other people and other people sharing information, and, and that's we what all help each me. other. We do, and like I think, I think my closing thought would be: um, this is an, an element of science, uh, and this is an element of clinical care that has huge impact on the clinician, on the hospital provider, and and certainly on on the the people who receive these devices. And I think having this shared around multiple disciplines um, has been a tested process that's really not lived up to expectation. It's it's actually failing, and it's failing continually and, and miserably at that. And it's probably time for us, again, I say this um, with tongue-in-cheek, but honestly, on mature reflection, that we have a professional entity that is entrusted with the ownership and the, the coordination of vascular access and infusion therapy. In the same way an orthopedic doctor looks after your bones, there's someone to look after your venous access for your infusion therapy. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to sacrifice the dedicated, timely care and maintenance provided by the bedside nurse or their opportunity to perform these invasive procedures when they're needed or medical or other healthcare colleagues. That's not it at all. It's that there needs to be a proper ownership and mechanism in place. And I think a vascular access and infusion um, specialist module is one that healthcare providers could consider that would be um my closing thought.
0: thank bravo. you so much yeah, bravo
3: yeah. nicely done but from, from, wish... from a Go dark ahead. um from a dark and dusky <laughs> ireland uh <laughs> well, yeah well pete
2: i wish i had known you when i came to dublin i lectured there twice on phlebotomy and uh you know you and i needed to just uh sit down and down sit down and uh Talk this over a
3: few pints of Guinness, I think. Dennis, I, I'll, I'll I'll send you my top 10 places that you, I'll take you. <laughs> oh, that? mercy. Yes. Yeah, Bring it on. Yeah, Bring yeah. it on. hundred percent. hundred percent. Look forward to it. Yep. Yeah. Thank
0: you so much, Nancy Moreau, Dennis Ernst, and Peter Carr. You can hear the rest of the story. I tell you the truth. We did not spill the beans on this one. They have such wonderful presentations prepared for us in June, June 29th, June 30th, and that's our next virtual program at INS. We're promoting vessel health and preservation through vein visualization, and it's sponsored by Acuvane. Thank you for listening. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.